Welcome to The Soul Connection, an exploration of the interconnectivity between our social influencers, physical and emotional well-being, with a spark of spirituality. Please welcome your host, The Soul Doctor, Dr. Christiane Lepertz, known as Dr. K. Hey, welcome to The Soul Connection. We are in Plymouth, Massachusetts today and have an expert in the field, a historian, Dr. Paul Jaley. Right, you got it. And uh, I listened to you on Sunday. I was so just really impressed with the message you gave. It was so timely. Here we are, 4th of July. We've just come off of the 2020-400th year of celebrations. I also have uh, Jerry Pereira and his wife, Beth, here joining us from the Leiden Preservation Group. Jerry, welcome back. You've been on a show before, and um, you are just a plethora of information as well. And so this is going to be exciting because I really, really am am excited to share the spirit that I found here. Like there's a a patriotism here, especially being over the fourth. It's really quite exciting. When you're at the place where everything started, there's just a whole different, shall we say, vibe in the air. But uh, feel free to give us a little bit of this constitutional background and and some Well, I can just give you a little snippet before I jump into some of the remarks I made on Sunday. I was led to the Lord by my basketball coach in 1971. I started a uh, Bible study, a research, uh, for the last next four years I was in college. My senior year, I dropped out of all the athletics I was in. just dove into the Bible and, and researched the scriptures four or five hours a day and produced a uh, mini concordance on the mind. Uh, my whole goal was to find out how does God wish our minds to operate, distinct from the brain. Brain is obviously physical health and uh, has a lot to do with the uh, medium that our mind can express, but the idea of our soul and our mind that were transformed by the renewal of our mind. That was the verse that just got me uh, really concerned because I looked at it and I recognized that very soon after I started this little concordance of every verse in the Bible that has to do with the mind, how does God design the mind to operate? And keep in mind, I'm finishing my college career, so to speak. I was a mathematics major. So, um, I began asking my professors questions. What makes this course distinctly Christian? Just because you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, does not make the material. So I began to, in my first window into what I would consider the sovereignty of God, an understanding of the sovereignty of God and how everything in the universe uh, portrays Christ, like Romans 1.20 tells us, that we see his power and, his God, and the Godhead through all that he's made, was in calculus. And I had an experience in calculus class where I began to recognize that the area under a curve, which basically is the physical properties, math is the language of science. So this was the description of a physical law by which you can build bridges over canals and, and, and drive across them with confidence. And I recognized that the sovereignty of God and his power was uh, just as real in the very small aspects of every single tiny cube that you put on this uh, array, you know what I mean, for deciphering it mathematically. Uh, and I began to, I saw Christ. Uh, this was, I got a revelation of Christ through calculus. And when that happened, I began to recognize that that's true in calculus, it's true in any area of life. And could it be that all the academic disciplines are actually branches of God's nature and God's power, and that they give various, like a prism, various aspects of who he is? 
So it began a, a, a research and a study in this area. And I began to, to research this and began to say, well, how does mathematics describe the kingdom of God or portray the kingdom of God? And as I began to do that, and science and math, and I began to see the hand of God in that, I began to see the hand of God in history. And I had never really considered, I didn't like history when I went to school. I uh, was an individual who was uh, more inclined to sports, and then I was more inclined to mathematics. I had some people who were coming to me and say, the best way to become spiritual is to get rid of your mind. Don't even think. Just let the Holy Spirit do it all. But I had some great mentors that began to take me and say, no, um, you know, I often use the seminars this way. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind, not the removal of our mind. (laughs) So I realized that uh, we realized God wants to use it because we're spirit, Mm -hmm. soul, and body. And so uh, the spiritual is the most important that has to get healed, that has to be operating there. But then God's going to transform the mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe even in that regard, God can transform the synapses physically also in a person's physical body, in, in the nervous system and whatnot. But the point is... So it's not a spooky thing. It's just an aspect, because I began to really work for the first time in my life with my mind. And as I went through developing these scriptures, I began to realize that, you know, there's a proper methodology in teaching. And I would, this is, here I'm in college, and I'm preparing these notebooks. I still have these big, thick notebooks. And I said, when am I ever going to use this stuff? I'm never going to use this stuff. And so I began to take, I was in a Christian school. I began to say, well, gee, if I ever ran a Christian school, here's how I'd do it. And I started to recognize, and I researched the Old Testament law, and recognized that the Old Testament law had several practical applications. And they were in reading, writing, geography, history, literature, mathematics, science. And I realized the original curriculum God gave in idea form that would disciple a nation was right in the Bible. So I began to uh, prepare that. It took me about uh, eight years, but I, I uh, you know, most people you start with your small books. A lot. My, my big fat book was the first one I did. And um, go ye therefore and teach all nations. And what I did was, by looking at that, I started to say, okay, this applies. So it was from that holistic viewpoint of the kingdom of God and seeing Christ in everything Mm -hmm. and Christ's work in everything as creator and redeemer, not mystical things, you know, that uh, you don't just, just because the number two means something in the scripture and the number three, then two plus three equals five and, and just getting to be into the mystery with no practical application. I'm talking about the the key things that will really transform a life. Mm-hmm. That's when all of a sudden I found myself having to start a Christian school at this church where I still am. And, um, and I realized, wow, that's kind of providential. I started pulling those notebooks off my shelf from college thinking, what if I ever, though I never want to teach, but if I ever got involved, what would I do with it? So I was able to create a school, so to speak, with the kingdom emphasis that I always had been studying now for all those years. So we wanted to see the fact that the kingdom of God would be seen by students through academic disciplines. That brought me into contact with the Foundation for American Christian Education, the principal approach. It brought me into contact with providential history organizations. And when it did in the 1970s, there weren't a whole lot of them around. And there weren't a whole lot of books around like there are today. That's how I got catapulted in, into this. Most people think that I just was a history major. I never studied history. I never had any degree in history. I fell in love with history because I saw God in history. I saw that God orchestrates events. Yes. That uh, the rudiments of those events. I, I, I early on started publishing my first 
newsletter that I started publishing was Seeing God in Biblical Principles in Every Academic Discipline. And I would write these every month. And uh, how do you see Christ in calculus? How do you see God in algebra? How do you see in any academic discipline, from science to grammar to spelling or whatnot? You know, the Bible says very clearly you can see the Trinity in the midst of academic knowledge. Well, I remember the first time I got that revelation in grammar. You know, you have this, you know, the subject, you have the verb, and then you have the modifiers. And all of a sudden I realized, there's the Trinity. I mean, I, all of a sudden I would see that. I would see that every language you have that. You have the, the action, you have the, uh, you know, have the Father, the Son, you have the Holy Spirit. And you, you look at it and say, not to be mystical, but the fa- fact that if you begin to master things at their principal level, you can you can actually can express Christ through academics without not being crazy. It's just being, you see it all fit together. When I started with history, I had some people that laid out history providentially. That, that when you when you get history in chronological order, you see cause and effect. Yes, that's do. what God says. That mm-hmm. this this will happen if this happens. I remember teaching a class for the first time and having the lights come on in the students. When I said, "Look, if you look at this and you see this nation." And the culture is wicked. And you see there is no respect for life. There's no respect for children or babies or the unborn or, or any of those things. There's no respect for the law and justice, just like Isaiah prophesied. If you see that happen, well, then you've got a reason. Okay, that doesn't come from nowhere. That comes from the heart. What kind of heart condition in the people cause it? Then when you know biblical principles, you just have to ask a deeper question. Because every nation externally, is a reflection of the most dominant religious philosophy in that nation. Not the most dominant religion, the most dominant influential religion. In mm-hmm. that. You could have a nation that has 70% of its people of a certain religious persuasion, but if they're not influential, they're not the ones that are dominating the culture. Because it's religious ideas in the heart. The Bible says, as the heart goes, so goes the external. Yes. So if that's really the case, you have to look at it generationally. So one to two generations before, what is the heart condition of the people? That's why you get what you get in the culture. Mm-hmm. The problem we have in the United States today is that I think probably the number one ignorance that people have is they do not understand, in the political world especially, cause and effect. There's no understanding of cause and effect. That what you have in the effect came from a cause. Someone planted those seeds. Right. So you might not reaping. have planted them. But you allowed them to be planted. You never pulled the weeds. Right. So either it's commission or omission. I remember when Russ Walton first told me that. Paul, there's two types of sin. I'm saying, two types of sin? I don't have a problem enough with one type of sin. What are you talking about? <laughs> he says, well, there's the ones you commit. I said, uh-huh. And there's the ones you omit. I said, what do you mean? When you know what's right to do and you don't do it. That was like, ouch. Oh, I don't want to talk to you anymore. But it was some reason he saw potential in me, took me under his wing, and uh, because I would always call him up and ask him a question. I said, in the Old Testament, when the law says this, what does that really mean? This is just brilliant. He was brilliant. And I remember the day he said, Paul, you've called me like three times this week to ask me to do your homework. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. This is a real mentor. Mm-hmm. He said, how many concordances do you own? Uh, well, I own what he I want you to invest in the following things. I want you to look it up, read two commentaries, maybe three, I'll give you the best ones, you, you go to them, after you've written a couple of pages on it, and you already have formed an opinion from the Bible, then you call me. 
don't let me connect the scripture. Because at first you would go, oh, go to Leviticus 19, go to Numbers, go to Deuteronomy. And I'm like thinking, oh, this is so awesome because yeah, <laughs> I wasn't thinking he was doing it for me. Yeah. But that was part of renewing my mind. you know. And so he taught me, in essence, how to be productive and not consuming. But, you know, the idea that cause and effect is, is you, you can't talk to people about that now. And you can't say, listen, it's what happened in the 1940s and the 1960s. We are fully reaping now the 1960s. Now yes. we are. That's who we are. And you, because you've got to go at least a generation and a half, 60 years. And you've got to go, you've got to go that far in order to see the fruit come up. You see it historically all the time. Mm-hmm. So if you want to know why there was 1960s, you got to go back to 1900 or right. 1880. And when you find out in, it was in 1880 that Christianity was mixed with socialism. So you had Christian socialists. That's how you got theistic evolution. That's how you got combined. That's how you got the, the Marxist uh, uh, syllogism and how you got the dialectic. And the dialectic was merging Christianity and socialism and Marxism. And then you realize that comes back to the 1840s. And you start to realize generationally how we got where we got, the question is not so much you have these individuals who say, politically, how do we stop the bleeding? How do we stop? I understand. There's an, if you don't put a tourniquet on, you might lose your life. And the, and the nation has to have a tourniquet. I understand yeah. all that. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're not sowing the next seeds for the next 40 to 60 years, all the tourniquets in the world are not going to save your life. You can get on the operating table and you can still be breathing. Mm-hmm. But if there's nothing nutritionally being put inside you, if there's no new nourishment that's going in, if you're not having your nervous system restored, if you're not having your brain cells restored, you're, not, you're going to be a, a, a living corpse that's on machine support. Right. And there's going to be a time when no one thinks that body needs to live anymore and they just pull the plug. And that's where we are. Why do you keep a Republican form of government? That's not a democracy, for example. We never formed it as a democracy. We formed it as a republic. Patterned after the ancient Israelites as a republic before they chose a king. And at first I thought, oh, that's just a bunch of rhetoric. Until I started reading the clergy's sermons of the 1730s and 40s. It's the most popular illustration of all time. We should have an, a government like ancient Israel before they chose a king. Over and over again. And all of a sudden I realized that form can only be kept if you have the right spirit within it. Mm-hmm. So now, today, they're just pulling the life support plugs off. Why do we keep this thing alive? What's the purpose of the Electoral College? That's ridiculous. Why do you have, you know, senators and, and congressmen? Why don't we just have a direct democracy? Which, you know, some of the people pulling the plug at the top know that democ- pure democracy will lead right to tyranny. They know that. Yes. So you, you swing the pendulum from one to the other. But I only learned these things because I started to see the biblical patterns of truth. I started in the scriptures, and then I began to see the academic disciplines illustrate those scriptures. So long beyond that, and I say all that because you, you know, I know you ask about a Sunday sermon, but a Sunday sermon does not appear out of a vacuum. No. And especially if I'm going to use the Declaration of Independence as an illustration of kingdom truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, people will come to me and they'll say, well, gee, how, do you, how did you know that you're, you're just turning America into some Christian nation? I said, no, I, I have no power to do that. Uh, there's no, I can't do that. And I said, number one, let's define what Christian nation means. Because some people think that means every single person in the nation must be Christian. Of course not. That doesn't, that's not the case. 
uh, any more than uh, I was in a debate one time with a guy who said America doesn't have a Christian uh, history, and I said, "How do you how do you say that?" He says, "I can point to several sins in America. I can point to the sin of slavery. I know that's accurate." I said, "I can point to the sin of uh, violation of covenants with Native Americans." I said, "Oh, that, that you're true. That's an accurate one too." I can refer to the uh, eventual devotion to Masonic Lodges uh, all throughout the dotting of the landscape of America. And I said, yeah, that's true, that Masonic Lodges don't line up with Scripture, and I understand all that. And I said, that's really true. And he says, oh, so you're agreeing with me. I said, uh, you haven't answered the, the question. I said, what? I said, you asked what makes a nation Christian. I said, well, what makes a nation Christian? It's, it's its profession. I asked him, he's a Christian, having a friendly debate in a little congregation. Mm-hmm. Not here, but I, was, and I said, what makes you Christian? He went, well, 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 I said, why are you a Christian? You confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He said, that's right. I said, so really, I don't think you are a Christian. And he looked at me and he said, why? I said, because if I interviewed your wife, I guarantee there are sins in your life. <laughs> and he went, yeah, I said, yeah, <laughs> sins that there's areas where you're a slave to. There's areas where you have broken covenants. So if your definition is that a nation has to have no sin, no broken covenants, nothing like that in order to be Christian, well, no person can be a Christian. You're demanding more perfection out of a nation made up of Christians and non-Christians than you do about yourself. You, you have a double standard. Mm-hmm. And even though the people listening were, you know, were, were some laughing, some wondering where this is going to go, and it, it, it was a civil atmosphere. It was not a... It was with Christians. But the point is... Look, we have to define our terms. We're, we're not asking that the nation, but you see, the, the nation become perfectly Christian in that. No, that's never going to happen. The question is, though, what did America do with those sins? And the question is not which nation had slavery, for instance. Every nation had slavery at the time of the Republic. Mm. Which nation tried to get rid of it? Right. And what was the motivating force to do that? And you find out that was Christianity, true yes. Christianity, not in Christianity in name only. And so, you begin to recognize, but you see, there's this merging of several things, which makes it very challenging today because you're merging. Of, you need to. We need to know the scriptures in their context historically, because that hasn't been taught in seminaries. We've had doctrinal conclusions memorized by students who get seminary degrees without the reasoning of how those conclusions came to be and how to study themselves. There are still. It's still popular for pastors to get their sermons from the internet. They get them from the internet and then they preach someone else's property to a congregation. And no wonder it's dead. And I'm not saying don't do research. I, I research other people's sermons all the time. That's not what I'm saying. But the critical thing is we have to come to a place of becoming productive and to see the kingdom come forth because ultimately this is not about, like politically it's not about Democrat and Republican. It's not about left wing, right wing. It's about kingdom wing, mm-hmm. which is totally different. So if you deal with the outside to the inside, you're going to have conservative groups that right now are lining up thinking the Republican Party is the solution to America. They're thinking that if they get the right king of the Republican Party in the White House, then we're going to see a solution to this. And the enemy will then say, no, no, it's the Democratic Party. It's all the Democratic Party. That's the enemy, is the Democratic Party. The solution is the Republican Party, and it's all a distraction. It's all smokescreen. Because mm-hmm. the real problem is not flesh and blood. We know that from the Scripture. Right. The real problem is principalities and powers. Mm-hmm. And they're as much in the Republican Party as they are in the Democratic Party. They just wear different clothing. 
And so we have to be in a situation of saying, hey, no, we're after the kingdom. The kingdom has to come forth. And it will affect politics. But I said that, so I, I, I really offended a bunch of politicians. I was speaking to a bunch of politicians, and I probably used the wrong illustration, but I use it all the time. I said politics is like the exhaust that comes out of the tailpipe of a car. Wow. The problem is the engine. Mm-hmm. If the engine is not politics, the engine is what produces the politics. Politics is dirty. It's difficult. It brings out the worst in people. It's hard to get people to agree. It doesn't mean it's negative. It doesn't mean it should never be used. No, you have to have exhaust. You can't do that. You can't deal with it. But if all you do is breathe the exhaust, you're going to die. Right. And, and I thought the illustration was good at first, but I, I've had it criticized <laughs> many times. And it didn't make the politicians feel any better that we're in the room. But the point is, I said, not them being exhaust. They have to realize this, because today the biggest idol in America, I believe, is civil government. We look to civil government for everything we used to look to God for. That is correct. And the point Absolutely. is, we're in a place where we, uh, if, we want, if we want something solved, we look to civil government. I mean, for Christians right now, to think that the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade has in any way solved the abortion issue, they're completely deceived. Yes, it's a very well-written, in many cases, constitutional decision. But at the same time, it is not, it is not the solution, because the solution doesn't come from politics. It right. doesn't come from government. This nation needs to spiritually repent. The issue is to, for the church to repent, because the nation is merely a reflection of the church twice generations removed. Two generations removed. We are today, externally, what the church was in the 1950s and 60s. It was abandoning the culture, going on retreat after 50 years. started in 1900, but it's, it's been going on since that time. Of having somehow the idea that... Um, that uh, the culture is not the responsibility of the Christian. God just wants us to go to heaven. So we take our priestly identity in it and totally neglect our kingly identity. So no wonder we don't preach the kingdom anymore. Well, on Sunday you had talked quite a bit about some of the history yes. about how Marxism moved into the country and, and how this has moved forward to where we're at today. Correct. And I was kind of hoping we could touch sure. on that That's a fine. little bit um, because— we're standing on what I call covenant territory mm-hmm. in America. This is, I believe, a spiritual gateway because of what happened sure. here, yeah. where man brought forward first covenant with each other and in the name of God. That's right. And so it kind of sets the tone for the sure. spirit yes. of this country. Yes. And you're an expert in this, so mm-hmm. I'd... So I, I would look at that and I'd say, you know, my point on Sunday, in a sermon where I'm going to take one clause that, of the Declaration, I take different ones each year when I do this, that if we're creating God's image, there's a, that's a covenant right there. A covenant mm-hmm. you don't even know about. But every, most human beings don't think that they're already in covenant with God being a part of his creation. So if they violate that covenant, they're going to suffer the consequences. We know that. And then to recognize that that vacuum that has been left by the church and Christians for all these years, something's going to fill that vacuum. And that's what the enemy does. The enemy doesn't create anything as we know it. He counterfeits what God has created. But uh, the enemy is not uh, in charge. And yet we recognize that today, no wonder atheism is taking such bold moves today. Because in any country where even a minority, a 20-30% of a nation who 
uh, and Christians who live out their faith can be the dominant influence in a nation. God never has needed a majority. And mm, yet in America, that's a good point. And yet in America, we had 70-80% converted, maybe even 90 some say, by the time of the American Revolution, after the Great Awakening. And the, the people who disagreed with each other in the Great Awakening both canceled Christians. So you've got, you can't look at just the Whitfields and the, uh, and, and the, the revival preachers, uh, Samuel Davies in the South and Whitfield and Edwards and all these individuals. You've got to look at even the people who disagreed with them, who left the churches where Whitfield was preaching, so he had to preach outdoors. They wouldn't let him in the church. The people who wouldn't let him in the church were also Christians. They differed on aspects of how the kingdom was going to come forth. But you realize that this nation had far more than a minority of Christians when it was formed. That didn't make it the Christian nation. But their laws crowned, their profession through their laws crowned Christ as king. So when the Declaration did that uh, and crowned the God of the Bible, that's the only place you get unalienable rights, is the God of the Bible. There is no other God in any religion that gives any kind of unalienable rights. Now, that was a great point because most people just read that or recite that and they don't even know what it means. No. Nor do they know what the pursuit of happiness, where that clause exactly. ever came from. Right. And if you don't know what those mean, those words mean, it's so easy to turn them over into rights that can be taken because exactly. they don't know right. that they have these inalienable rights. Right. And the whole idea, if it's an unalienable right, which means it cannot be separated from your nature. So we have to ask this question. What religion teaches that there is a God who personally intimately creates each individual, not as a rubber stamp, not as a, a duplicate digit of an individual who personally gets created, every facet about you, who, who, who you are, how you think, how, how you move, your physical features, everything about it crafted by God, and that you're in his image, meaning he created you in that part. Yes, you're fallen, you have a sin that contaminates everything, but at the same time, that potential remains there. What God does that? Well, we can go through the religions. There's only one God. One, one book that teaches that. Mm. And that's Christianity. So Christianity is the origin of unalienable rights or inalienable rights. Mm -hmm. Both words were used at the time, both spellings. And I think that someone would come back to me and they'd say, well, gee, uh, America could never have had a Christian history. I, and I try to reason with them and get to And I said, and then sometimes they don't think enough people were Christians. Or I, I found several founding fathers that weren't Christians. I said, well, yeah, but that, has, that isn't the point. It's, the point is how salty were the Christian ones. You see, at the time our country was founded, even the non-Christian lived by biblical principles. Right. Didn't make them saved. Right. But you can't read Poor Richard's Almanac by Benjamin Franklin and not see biblical verses coming out of Proverbs all the time. And yet he wasn't a Christian. And yet he admits in his autobiography that George Whitfield all night tried to convert him and all day, he just tried to scientifically find out how far his voice would foul, you know, travel. <laughs> so the point is, they had this agreement. They had this agreement because Ben Franklin was the hospitality home of Philadelphia. And so, for Whitfield. And, you know, you begin to see these and you recognize, no, that doesn't mean everybody is a Christian. Today, the problem is, the Christians live by humanist principles. Right. Because the influencers have changed. And so, uh, what we need to recognize, that whole idea of generations before us, where Marxism came, where you're saying, well, where does where does Marxism begin to get in? Well, you recognize any nation or any group of people that are truly living out Christianity 
will we'll have less room for darkness. Light will conquer darkness. There'll be less room for socialism, Marxism, communism, uh, all the other isms, less room for demonic uh, influence. Because when you're living in Christ, it's your best defense, is your offensive living for Christ. To put on Christ, to let Christ appear, to have his adornment, as the scripture says, of Christ's nature, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. When you live those things out, that is the most powerful thing. It's not politics. It's not having the right political people making the right votes. They will be there because of the other. Again, it's cause and effect. Mm -hmm. The the politics is the effect, not the cause. Right. And too many Christians are looking for a political solution to a spiritual problem. Right. Rather than a political effect from a spiritual revival. That's the thing that we need. So when you, you recognize that, where does Marxism come in? It comes in when we abandon living like Christ. We no longer are light in our cultures. I I look at it this way, that we have a priestly responsibility vertically before God, Mm -hmm. a heavenly identity. And we have a kingly responsibility in the culture. And that's our earthly identity. That's why Jesus says, you're the bride of Christ, that's vertical, Mm -hmm. but you're the salt of the earth, that's horizontal. So Christians are dual citizens. Right. And for years, for probably a hundred years now in the church, now, now it's changing today for the good better, which I'm glad. But there's for a hundred years, Christians only said that we're of God, the bride of Christ. And the sooner we get out of here, the better. The escapism. Escapism. <laughs> yes. Let the devil have the earth anyway, because that's who he is. So the prince of the power of the air, he owns the earth. God owns the believers. And so their whole mentality is, in order for the kingdom to come, God's got to rescue his church because the bride of church can't handle evil, can't light darkness, can't deal with the culture. So you get the church out, let the devil have the earth, and then the kingdom comes mailed to us from heaven flying down with feathers. Now, that's my sarcastic view of uh, end times eschatology that I don't agree with. But the thing is, I see it the other way around. I see, no, I see God is in control, not the devil. Mm-hmm. The devil's violating God's turf. God allows the devil on the turf because he's a toolbox to help grow the church up. Mm-hmm. Every problem we have is like going to the gym and learning to lift weights. There you go. And we are becoming stronger. The church is going to be an overcoming church, not a bowing down weak little vessel. The bride is going to uh, wear a spotless uh, robe because she's sanctified. That was just going through my head when you were speaking. Jesus is coming back for a spotless bride, not the runaway bride. Exactly. (laughs) Not the escapism uh, bride. Little darkness Ah! and run away. Right. We have to be in a situation where we recognize this. I'm not not preaching that the church will be perfected before Christ comes. That's not the point. But we are moving toward maturity in the church. Right. So the more the church begins to see that they have a responsibility in the culture. Um, Russ Walton taught me these, these are all biblical paraphrases but he would teach me these lines he said now he said the culture is exactly like the church two generations before mm-hmm. and he said you have to recognize that the, where the nation is today is a merciful reflection of where the people of God are oh and he ever said merciful because he said it's not what we deserve Paul we deserve far worse um, I remember applying this once to an uh, intercessors group I love them. I need, we need intercessors. But when intercessors only hang around intercessors and they're not dealing with people who are 
in the culture. And um, it, can yeah. be, it, can be, it can get spiral out of control. Mm -hmm. But they, anyway, they were praying for a certain thing to happen in the culture. It didn't happen. In fact, the exact opposite happened. I was in the room with several other spiritual leaders in a government building. And I remember the other spiritual leaders don't know what to say because these intercessors were absolutely, they didn't know what to do because they said they had prayed, they had fasted, which they had mm -hmm. for weeks, some of them, and saying, how come God didn't answer the prayer? And so the other leaders acquiesced and said, Paul, you address the group because we have no idea what to tell them. They're not. So I, I kind of sense, okay, here's the time for me to address. And I basically said, listen, folks, it's not that God didn't answer your prayers, not that God let you down. This is not true. Uh, we have our eye on the wrong ball. You have your eye on a victory in politics, but really it's a victory in the kingdom. You didn't like the fact that the Supreme Court does not follow the rule of law. And they're all like, that's right, that's right. But Christians kicked out the law three generations ago. It said we're saved by grace and we don't need the law of God. We don't need to follow the, uh, the, the righteous rules of God. We, we redefined grace. And we redefined grace as, uh, you know, instead of the ability, which the grace, the word Greek, the word is ability, charis, ability, to keep God's law. It's, we can't do it in our own strength. The grace is given to help us to keep the law. But Christians kick the law out of churches. That's why we're so easily taken over, because we have no guide. We don't teach the Old Testament anymore. We cut out the Old Testament. We live only by the New Testament, and yet the New Testament can't be understood without the That's context what, yep. of the Old Testament. And so, as Christians, we have gotten the fruit of our own doing. Right. So we have to live through that. That's what... That's what judges us. That's what grows us up. We are living in the judgment more mercifully than we deserve. Because we have a chance. There's always hope. I say to people, I am not dejected by the condition of America. The condition of the, what we see in the earth is the effect of the cause of licentious Christianity. Uh, powerless believers who have lived to try to get to heaven without any earthly responsibility. Not only have many Christians not voted at all, but in the, in the body of Christ, the voting registration, it's, it's gone the, on the way up, and thank God for that, but it's been so pitifully low. Mm -hmm. And so we give the culture to every other religion, and we're not in competition with religion, just live out Christianity. This is not one religion against another. This is living out Christ. Uh, that What do you expect? I mean, this is... This is um, it's not fatalism. It's cause and effect. It's God's law. It's sowing and reaping. Yes. And when you sow the wrong seeds, it's sowing and weeping. Yes. And you have to realize that this is part of what travailing for the culture really is. But when you speak like this, this is a foreign language often to Christians. Because Christians either feel, no, on the one hand, I prayed, we had a three-hour prayer meeting, it's done. Yeah. Or someone just emailed me the other day and just said, Paul, you can relax. This was a year before our 2020 event, which ended up being 2021, in Plymouth, uh, dealing with the 400 for the pilgrims. And they, they emailed me, and I said, relax, everything's all set, everything's done, because we've been to the court in heaven, and it's been ruled. I said, I, I believe there's courts in heaven, but I believe that we don't find out a ruling in a court in heaven through a prayer meeting. It's the word of God that's already told us what the verdict is. Mm -hmm. I'm more word-centered. That mm -hmm. I believe the spirit moves through the word. I don't mean I don't believe the, the spirit moves moves in spite of the word. So I I have the word, the word the 
the word for mind in the scriptures is canal. So you need the water to flow through the canal. Yes, you do. <laughs> but if the canal is not discipled and you and the mind is not renewed according to scripture, it will send the water in a wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Same water, Spirit of God. Thank God He floods us over the banks. But the point is, there's a, there's a certain aspect of that. This is why revivals in American history, for instance, another pattern, where the revivals in the 1740s and 50s changed a nation. That's what won our independence, the Great Awakening. There would have been no American Revolution without the Great Awakening. Wouldn't have happened. So now you have spiritual, and you have that because Christians believe. And what is the testimony of the Great Awakening? Statues that dot all our landscapes. Because the result of the revival in the church was a changed culture in society. Mm-hmm. And the society built the monument to remember the event. It's our job to go to the monument and bring back the well that produced the event. We don't worship the stone, we don't worship, but it's a Gilgal stone. Remember what God did here. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the reason we give tours. We don't we don't give tours just because I like facts or I just love history or some people say, Oh, he just loves to stand in front of monuments. That's what Paul Daly loves to do. <laughs> well, you have to understand, yes, I do stand in a lot of monuments and I understand. And my kids could tell you every vacation we found a plaque somewhere in the woods someplace. They grew <laughs> yeah. up with all that kind of stuff. Dad's gonna be giving a tour on vacation somewhere. He's gonna uh, talk to somebody. Yeah. Understood. He's gonna find some very rare book that look, one of the days all the time we grew up going on vacation, vacation for us is We'd go to an old bookstore, somewhere where we were. Mm-hmm. My wife would take all the literature books on the middle column. I'd take all the books on the top shelf. Our kids would be on the bottom ones. They'd have to check it with mom. Can we take this book out now? She would look at my wife's a connoisseur of literature. She'd look at the wrong illustrator. No, no, I don't. I don't like the way they illustrate that book. Uh, great author. You picked a real good one, Jonathan. You've good author. That's a good one. Well, we would go through those things, not because we were like in love with worshiping history but because we wanted the river. We wanted the river of God that was coming through the providential history. And that's where God moves. Right. But you look at the revivals of the 1800s, the Second Great Awakening. We missed something here. The revivals, the, the revivals of the Second Great Awakening produced testimonies of camp meetings, circles, mm-hmm. in the church. Mm-hmm. That's what dot the landscape for the Second Great Awakening. By the 1870s and 80s, still good. Tabernacles built. But the idea and the mentality was... Christians get together and they go away together and they mm. get revived and the testimony is look at this camp meeting that was built. The testimony yeah. is not something in society. Yeah. It's something in the church. And when the Azusa Street revivals break out in the early 1900s it's all individual then. It's not even the church. So you have individual to the church to the society. And what it does, now it's all personal. It's personal yes. revivalism. It's my experience. Mm-hmm. I went to that, well, I'll drive, I'll fly across the world to get an experience, mm-hmm. to, to deal with it. I understand flying, you want to get prayer, if you need heal, healing, you want to do everything you can. But I'm talking about worshiping a personal experience rather than saying, God, I want to be revived so that I see something happen in the culture in which I live. Right. Let, let not me go through life and the only thing left is a tombstone, the date I lived, the born, the date I died, and what happened in between. You know, I, I go to enough graveyards right now and tell stories of people who died. Mm-hmm. But what I say is what they happened. You can go to Plymouth and Burial Hill today. Mm-hmm. And you can go to a little gravestone marked Thomas Fonts. 
and you'd think, who's, who's this guy? But this guy not only died in his 99 years of age, but this one guy in Plymouth spanned both the pilgrims to the Patriots, knew George Whitfield personally when he preached in Plymouth, and though he disagreed with Whitfield in different areas, he's the guy that kept, he's the only guy that pointed out what, where the pilgrims stepped on Plymouth Rock. We wouldn't, have, we wouldn't even know it except for this deacon in the church who was the psalm leader in the late 1600s and still alive in his 90s in the 1740s when revival took place. So mm. if you miss that, that guy made a major impact, a mark in society. Yes. And yet, who knows of him? Well, and we were actually talking, Jerry and I were actually talking uh, over dinner about keeping this covenant territory yes. because some of the monuments we are finding are, or the historic buildings have been turned over for redevelopment because you will go into this area where Plymouth Rock is and you turn, you look, and there's new condos. Well, most certainly those new condos are on covenant land mm -hmm. that should be preserved. Right. If, if this is a gateway where it all started, and U.S. has very... Um, just small smidgens of history compared to European and right. how vast and right. long it is, you'd think the nation would really kind of zero in to say, hey, Plymouth, we need to, we need to preserve this area. We, we need to preserve for our children what happened here. Because if we don't preserve it here, where is it going to go? Right. And I think one of the things that happens is when you lose what God did in an area, you then begin to emphasize only the other things. See, when God uses human beings, so someone came to me and said, bad things happened in Plymouth. Not everybody here was righteous. That's true. Not everybody here was righteous. I said, but the, the point is, we are emphasizing what God did through frail human beings. Mm -hmm. And the point is, if you take God out, all you have left are frail human beings. Yes. So they said to me, aren't there bad things? I said, there's a bad thing in every event that ever happened in the world because people were involved. Mm -hmm. And sin is involved. And they warp it or, or it goes awry. What we want to do is set the best. What we want to remember, the gatekeepers, is, okay, who kept covenant and why? Mm -hmm. They didn't keep covenant because of their own strength. They didn't keep covenant because of their sins and their frailties. They kept covenant because they were looking to God. They were asking for God's uh, window of opportunity because it's not against other people that were sinful or no that that very area of what god did exposes what other people did that was wrong and that's what is so powerful because it isn't yes it is true it's the same thing we've talked about why do they want to change and, and remove the ancient landmarks which our fathers have said why do you want to remove those you see no purpose for them anymore and number one all you've studied is the external. And you found things that were wrong, that did this against that person. Sometimes they don't even have the history right, and the, that person right. didn't do that. But if, even if they did, mm -hmm. assuming for now for the devil's advocate to say, okay, maybe they did find something. Because people are people. I mean, you're going to have issues all the time. You're going to have negative things. I said in front of a, a crowd that was uh, cross-examining me, saying, how could you ever have even speak of the pilgrims in a positive light? Because of all the atrocities they committed. And when we talk about it, we realize, okay, their atrocities, they focused on a, a few things that they did. Yeah, the pilgrims. The pilgrims knew themselves, they wrote later, they should never have dug up Indian graves on Cape Cod. They said that was odious to the people they were trying to reach. They yes. said that in their own writings. Yes. They shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake. 
And yes, and, and there are individuals who can say, see, uh, they did that, or, or they took the corn before uh, they, they were willing to, able to repay it and, and all the rest. And I said, okay, those are all things. I said, but there's a lot of people who would never have repaid. Right. So it's one thing to have done something that you could say today, you look back and say, mm, that's a mistake. But I said, my point is, I said, but when, how often do you have people own up to the mistake and say, you know, that was not the right thing, and we're going to make this right because of God. That's what you're missing, that, that God can use anybody. He can use, uh, he can use these. So the gateways are, are yes, I, I agree, that there are wells God digs for mm -hmm. revival. They get filled with sand by subsequent generations who no longer understand the water that once filled in there, and they have to be redug. Right. Part of re that's called research. We research, we find out where the water came from, but then we have to go back to the well ourselves and say, God, it's not just enough to preserve the ancient landmarks. We want the well to flow because then people will realize why the landmark was there in the first place. Exactly. Why is it even there? So you see this happening. You see this happening in the major cities where uh, the only reason people are tearing down monuments in America is they, have no, they see no reason for them. And they haven't been taught anything positive about that individual, right. which would have caused them to say, wait a minute, yes, they did this wrong, they did that wrong, but man, they were God-fearing. You know what I mean? Or they, uh, this is a representation of the kingdom. Because you're not going to find any, if you take that standard, you've got to tear down everything. Right. Because there is no perfect. There's no perfect no. person, but. We're, our eyes are on the kingdom. Right. And the kingdom's going to come out, as the Bible says, by measure, like a measure of meal, kneaded in. It's going to come out, little by little, it's going to leaven the whole lump. But when we see the kingdom right now, in our eyes right now, it's a mixture. You've got, because the kingdom is not the, the church. The kingdom is birthed out of the church, but the kingdom is saved and unsaved. The kingdom is the culture. The, the kingdom is going to be manifested in the culture. It's not synonymous with the culture because we see all the kinds of issues we see in the culture. But the kingdom is broader than that. So you have to ask a Christian. I remember when I first got started as senior pastor here back in the 1980s, I must have preached for years on the Beatitudes because I realized if we didn't have the right attitude toward the culture, We'd never sow our lives into it. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. it's the attitude. The be attitudes are the attitudes that believers have toward the culture. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Meekness is, are we truly under God's tamed and attitude? Or are we uh, saying, I've preached some convicting messages, that are, and I've told the congregation, I'm more convicted after preaching the message than they probably are in hearing the message. <laughs> And that is when I recognize that the attitude of disrespect toward the political officials that run our country right now, who are evil, many of them are evil, but when we can sarcastically joke about them, it's, it's, it's a sin. It's wrong. They are not the problem. The problem is we have spiritual wickedness in high places. Yes. They are embodying that, yes. But how easy it is for me to listen and laugh at a joke about the President of the United States and to not have conviction as a problem with my lack of meekness. Mm. And this is where God is doing the work in the body of Christ. Do you really, how are you going to inherit the earth when you despise it? How are you going to inherit the earth when all you do is try to find out what's wrong with it? I mean, that's what the zealots did in Jesus' day. The zealots in Jesus' day, all they did was have the latest thing purported as to what a Roman official did that was wrong. 
Who's marrying who? Who's committing incest? Who's committing all these crimes? The zealots knew everyone, and all they did was publish it. So if all you know about is everything that's going wrong, and oh, do you realize how bad it really is? Do you realize this conspiracy is no longer conspiracy? Do you realize this is going on, this is going on? They're, they're so filled with it, and then on the other hand, the only method to change the society is force, political force. You only change it politically. So your only means is to kill the Romans and take over politically. It's called Christian nationalism today. Hmm. We wed Christianity and the kingdom only with the external politics and the nation and who's leading it. So there are Christians, I'm telling you today, that are, I love them, they're part of the body of Christ, I'm working with them, everything I can, but their eyes are on the White House rather than their house. Ooh, that's a good word. And therefore, it's a it's wrong. This nation will not once again be the bearer of the kingdom of God based on merely external changes in politics. Don't get me wrong. I preach it's a sin not to vote, okay? Yeah, I am no, involved. I, uh, every local leader on here knows my name. I mean, mm -hmm. I, am, I build relationships both sides of the aisle, everything I can do. But it is a situation where Christians are, don't have the eye on Christ. Mm -hmm. And this is this has become the this is a big burden. That's why the Beatitudes are so important because every one of them deals with the attitude of the Christian toward the culture. Think about the Beatitudes. Most people don't realize it in this context. Jesus said, "You have this attitude. This is what will happen in the culture." And Christians, they're like, "If you're a peacemaker, they who's they the culture will call you a child of God." If you, if you, then, at the end of the Beatitudes, if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's no guarantee. We manifest the kingdom in America today. There's no guarantee we're not going to face martyrdom. No guarantee of that. Either God transforms the culture or the, he allows the culture to martyr those individuals who stood for Christ. Not martyred because we're jerks, but martyred because we truly bear the image of Christ. That's seed for the next generation. But the point is to look at that and you say, gee, this is, this is powerful because we realize our goal has to be proper. And it, we have to see that culture. So, you know, uh, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness in their hearts, true righteousness. Mm -hmm. They will be filled. They're, they're going to see that come in the culture. So those attitudes, I look at it that Christ is dealing with our attitudes toward the culture. And that, that's one thing, because my attitude, I mean, I don't always yell at television sets. <laughs> but I do pace the living room floor when the news is on. Yes. And, uh, or my wife will say, you've got to see this. Sit down. You've got to see this, because you've got to know what's going on. And I'm like, I can't, I can't believe this is happening. And yet, it's what, it is, look, God knows what he's doing. He's allowing the evil to show itself in America today so that it wakes up the church. I agree. So our light has to shine brighter because it says it, the darkness gets darker, but we are supposed to become brighter. That's right. And sometimes we get deceived because we think our light's getting real bright, but it's really just because the lights have been turned off and the little flicker shines a little bit better right now. Yeah. But then we realize, hey, this is not as bright as we need to be. And that's good. God uses it both ways. Yes. That? I'll never forget when Russ Walton turned to me and he said, Paul, darkness cannot reign where light prevails. 
I'll never forget that. Man, it's like, what? Because I had been schooled like so many other Christians. No, you know, I'd be in my light, but, but it's okay because anything we do in the culture is just like, you know, brass on a sinking ship. And we're never going to see anything happen, true revival and awakening, and that we're just all supposed to live for Christ and then get out of here when the real stuff happens. It's like a friend of mine put it in this analogy. He goes, what kind of God is it when you get to the Super Bowl? And he says the ideal is now you got to the Super Bowl, we're taking our team off the field, letting the other team score all the touchdowns, yes. and then and we're going to root from heaven. Yeah. Can we play? That, that's the escapism thing. That, yeah, the escapism thing. So I would say, all the way back to this whole idea, Marxism comes in because there's a vacuum, and Christians aren't living out that faith. Well, and I just had t uh, Tony Sab, who's running for mayor on Mayor of Orlando, yep. last week. He's a retired colonel. Yes. Phenomenal man of service. And Isn't it exciting seeing how God is uh, bringing people he's, forward he because of this darkness that have real character running he for office? He is. Oh, and man, I was talking about I'm that. I, with that. And, and, you know, I, I prayed with him because this man truly has a heart for this sure, country. Sure. And, and that's. What's starting to raise yes, up now yes. where you have people who've, who've served, retired. Absolutely. They thought they were retiring and, you know, going to raise and help raise their grandkids and this and that. And they feel the call now and they're firing up. It takes greater maturity to influence than it does to hold power. I always have to realize that. It's more maturity to influence someone because I'm not manipulating I'm not, it's just, at, they're attracted to the passion, to the love that you have, to Christ on the inside, mm -hmm. and then someone says, you know, I really like that. They do it not from unthinking obedience, but from thinking obedience, and they realize, gee, that's the case. So we think that the kingdom comes by law, when really civil laws are passed in a society when the people consent to a righteous law because their hearts have been influenced. Some directly changed, Christianity, mm -hmm. and others influenced. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. Thank you again for tuning in to The Soul Connection. We can be found at soulconnectionusa.com with our developing community. Please join us again every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, find new ways this week and every week to make your own soul connections.